0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabaniss. If we've not met, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to have you with us this morning And it's a good Sunday to join us if you're new because we're starting a new series that will go about six ish. Uh, weeks. Uh, it's planned for that, but that, that's subject to change. The series is called Surprising Mercy, Discovering God's Compassion for Those Who Are Far From Him. Surprising Mercy. Uh, I, we have a book, uh, typically when we go through a new series, we have a book we recommend, and uh, this series is no exception, so we have a book we're recommending that is out uh, at the Resource Center there, kind of right across from where you buy coffee at the, at the uh, cafe there. Um, It's a book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal Prophet, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy. It's not a a commentary per se. He doesn't uh, like walk verse by verse through the book of Jonah, Uh, but he walks section by section through and then draws out sort of big themes. uh, And there's a lot of themes that are uh, really live and culturally, I think, relevant for us today. So, Tim Keller, The Prodigal Prophet, that's a book I'd recommend, and we have it out there available for you if you would like to get a copy. Okay, so what I'm going to do today is a little different um, in that I'm going to give an overview of the book. Normally on a short book like this, I would just jump right in, Um, but I want to talk a little bit about um, why we're doing this book at this time, and then I also want to uh, give a bit of an overview. So we'll look at the whole story today today. And uh, then at the end, we'll try to see what the central theme of the book is and make some application. So normally, I do have a text, we will look at the first three verses, but normally we just sort of, you know, work our way through a section of a chapter or a whole chapter or something like that. Today will be a little bit uh, of an overview. So let me begin by reading the text um, that, that we'll look at today, then I'll pray and then we will uh, move on. This is God's word to us today. Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under uh, the seat in front of you, and you can look at page 451. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil. Has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. God I pray that as we open this wonderful book today that you would speak to us. Lord we come here today from all different places, all different backgrounds, all different experiences, uh, different perceptions of you, different perceptions of our world, different perceptions of how we should live in this world. And I pray today that this study would inform us that you would teach us how we are to relate to our world. And that you would not only teach us how to relate, but that you would also change our hearts. We pray that through this study of this prophet, that you would um, open our hearts and minds to you, that you would change us as a people for your glory. Speak to us today, we pray. We are listening. We need you. Speak to us. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a polarized culture this is no surprise um, to anyone. This isn't uh, some sage social commentary that I'm making. Uh, It's just stating the obvious. We live in a polarized culture. In our culture, there is a pressure to take a side. Everyone takes a side. Everyone points a finger in accusation at those on the other side. And this largely stems from the idea that we all embrace various identities as central in our lives. We uh, think about areas like our gender, our race, our sexual orientation, our politics, even our religion. And anyone who critiques us and our identity or slightly disagrees with us in the slightest... We oppose them. We label them oppressor. They are part of that group, them, that want to marginalize us and harm us and ruin our lives. And it's such to the place that we can't even have civil discussion in this culture anymore because everyone is angry and everyone views the world through an us-and-them mentality. Us-and-them We are black, or we are white, or we are another race. We have male and female. We have cisgender and transgender. We have gay and straight. We have millennials and baby boomers. We have progressives and conservatives. We have citizens and immigrants. We have those who live with the so-called coastal values of our country and those who live with the heartland values of our country. We have the religious and the irreligious. We have Christians and Muslims. We have blue collar and white collar. We have America and depending on how you answer that might determine if you're a nationalist or not, but we'll say we have America and everybody else on and on, us and them. And the question becomes for us in this day, how are Christians to live in an us and them world? We are not immune from this attitude. In fact, we're known for this attitude. You know, there's only two reasons why someone is not a Christian. First of all, they've never met a Christian. Or number two, They have met a Christian. Working on my atheist humor this summer, so there you go. It's true, it's a joke, but there's something about it. So, how are we to live and represent Jesus in an angry world where everyone is quick to lash out against them? This is a significant issue when we think about living and walking out of public faith. For this next year, we're going to talk a lot about the idea and the theme of public faith. We've sort of adopted that uh, as a central theme for the ministry year beginning today. Uh, Public faith is what goes on out there, not in here. Public faith is how I live my life out there and how I speak out there and how I represent Christ out there, not my prayer closet or my house or something like that, as important as that is, but how I live out there. It's living faithful to Christ in all of life, in both real life and my digital life. It's living faithful to Christ and being ready to give an answer, to speak up for Christ, to give an answer to those who ask, but to do it with gentleness and respect, is what First Peter 3 says, not to do it with an us-and-them mentality. So how do we live faithfully in an us-and-them world? I think it begins with getting God's perspective On them. That's where it starts. Getting God's perspective on them. It starts with understanding God's compassionate heart for them. It starts with being confronted by God's mercy for them. And that's why we're studying the book of Jonah. If you grew up in church going to Sunday school, then you no doubt as a little kid were fascinated by the story of Jonah. It has been told uh, in Sunday school classes with flannel graph as long as there has been flannel graph. And if you grew up, if you grew up not a believer, then you probably don't even know what that is because I don't know anybody but Christians that use flannel graph. Uh, What it is is it's like a board and then you have cut out, figures and you can like stick them on there and move them around in in their flannel. And so if you grew up going to church, then you probably in a Sunday school class heard the story about God speaking to Jonah, Jonah disobeying God, Jonah running away on the little flannel graph, and a big whale coming and swallowing up Jonah. And then you may have walked away with the moral of the story is Don't disobey, don't disobey God, or you too will be swallowed by a whale. And if you are going to disobey God, just stay out of the water. That may have been the story, but that is not what the story is about. Have you ever had the experience when you went somewhere as a kid and saw something and went back as an adult and go, wow, that's way different than I thought. And so for some of us, if we study the book of Jonah, it's going to be, oh, that's way different than I thought it was. Because the book is not about a whale. Book doesn't even mention a whale, it mentions a great fish, but that the great fish is only mentioned in three verses. He's not a central character in the story, and we're going to find out it's not a book about Nineveh, and it's not a book about Israel, and it's not a book about even Jonah, the prophet. It, it's a book about God. Surprise. It's a book about God. It's a story about God and His liberal, immeasurable, incomprehensible mercy to sinners who are far from Him. It's a book that shows that God is not only compassionate to us, but also to them. And in the context of Jonah, the us, going back to the us and them mentality, the us in the book of Jonah is Israel. The them is Assyria. And, and the story shows us through the wrestlings of Jonah, God's heart for them. And it shows us the weakness of this prophet who would actually rather die. He would actually rather physically die than see them receive mercy. They'll receive mercy over my dead body. That's exactly the, the, the attitude. Of Jonah. So let's start with just a reminder of what the story is. So I'm going to sort of tell you the story and then we'll go back and look at the three verses that we read and look for some themes in the book. The story tell, goes this way. Jonah is a prophet. Uh, he lives in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, it's when it's a divided kingdom and God comes to him and says, go down to the great city of Nineveh and let them know that my judgment is coming to them. Well, they are enemies of Israel, and Jonah does not want to go and preach God's word to his enemies, and so he gets on a boat traveling the other way to Tarshish, running from the presence of God. Well, the Lord sends a storm, And the storm is so bad that it looks like it's going to break the boat open. And so all of these sailors on the boat who are all pagan, none of them are Israelites, they all begin to cry out to their own gods. So everybody on the boat is crying out to their particular god asking for rescue because they really think they're going to lose their lives. Jonah is down in the bottom of the ship asleep and the captain goes down to him and the captain says, Uh, look, uh, we're all calling on our God because we're about to drown. Why don't you come and call on your God? Maybe your God will help. So Jonah comes up and the storm continues. And so what they do is they say, well, this has to be the revenge of the gods. Someone on this boat is a rotten apple. Someone Is bad and God is bringing some judgment. So we're going to find out who the bad person here that the gods are opposing. So they cast lots, which is kind of like rolling dice or drawing straws or whatever. And the the lot lands on Jonah. And so they're all, okay, who are you? And he says, "Uh, I'm a Hebrew who fears the Lord. Interesting definition of fear of the Lord uh, to run the other way from said Lord. But anyway, I fear the Lord, and they say, "Well, okay, so the lot of you, what do we need to do to stop the storm?" And uh, Jonah says, "Well, just hurl me into the sea, and the storm will stop." Um, well, they don't want to do that, and in an amazing, all oh, the story is absolutely full of surprises. But here's one: they pray to God, "Lord, we don't we don't want to be guilty." for killing this man, uh, but we're going to do what he says. And so they throw him overboard, the storm stops, and then the pagan sailors offer sacrifices to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and make vows to him. Meanwhile, Jonah is sort of, you know, drowning in the sea or whatever, but the Lord will not let Jonah get away from him. So he sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. And from the inside of the fish, Jonah's there three days. From the inside of the fish, Jonah prays and cries out, and in, he's in despair. And in the fish, he recognizes salvation comes from God, right? Salvation comes from the Lord. That's really the theme of the whole book. And that was the point of sending Jonah to Nineveh to begin with, because the Lord gives salvation. So, he, he cries out to God. He recognizes God uh, ultimately brings salvation to whom he desires. And the scripture says, quote, the fish vomits Jonah out upon dry land. I I don't think we had an image for that in the uh, felt board that I grew up with. But anyway, he's vomited out. So as soon as he's vomited out, the Lord says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah somewhat learns his lesson and he goes to Nineveh very begrudgingly, and he preaches what is the weakest sermon in the history of revival sermons. He just walks through the town saying, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I'm sure he said more than that, but that's all that we got from uh, the text. And what happens is the people respond. They repent. The word even gets to the king of Nineveh, uh, which is the capital of Assyria, and the king responds, and he says, everybody in Nineveh, repent. There's to be no evil. There's to be no violence, which is like saying there'll be no air. Uh, there'll be no violence because that's what they lived off of. None of this. Everybody repent, and maybe God won't bring destruction to us. God sees their response. God averts judgment on Nineveh, everybody in Nineveh turns to God. Jonah is ticked. The the quote is this, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Jonah is exceedingly displeased and angry. Why? Well, he says, God, this is exactly what I knew you would do. Why did you have to go and do a thing like that? This is what I knew you would do, and this is why I got on the boat and ran the other way. I knew you would be gracious and merciful, so just kill me. That's what he says. Just kill me now. I'd rather die than live. So Jonah walks out of the city and uh, just sits perched, depressed, angry at what is happening to them. They are repenting, and judgment is averted. And he just sits there. And while he's sitting there, God makes this plant grow up, and it grows up really quickly over him and shades him. And Jonah is affectionate, grateful, loves this shade plant. He is thrilled by it, in fact. The next day, God sends a worm, which eats the plant, and the plant shrivels and dies, and Jonah gets sunburned. Basically, it says he's out in the heat. It said he is faint. And again, he just says, I want to die. And the story ends with God saying to Jonah, you have pity on a plant that lasts a day. Should I not pity Nineveh, where 120,000 people don't know their right hand from their left? And that's the end. We don't know what happens with Jonah. We don't know what happens with Nineveh. We don't know what happens with Israel at that point. That's the end of the story. It is a fascinating story with some really strange sections, unusual points to it. And as we study it, what we're going to see is that it is a story of God's surprising mercy. There's mercy all over the place. There's mercy to pagan sailors, There's mercy to an entire pagan city with their king. There's mercy to their evil king. And there's even mercy for religious people like Jonah. God will not let him go. God stays after him. It's a story of mercy for us and for them. So let's go back to the text we read. Let's break down this beginning because the book starts out with a series of sort of surprising things. Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. One of the first questions we have to ask, and certainly scholars wrestle over, is what kind of book is this? It's in the section of your Bible that are the prophets, the small prophets, the short prophets. Well, I don't know about their stature, but their books are brief. The brief prophets is a way to say it. Uh, The brief prophets, the minor prophets. So it's in that section of the Bible, but people wrestle with what genre is this? Is the story of Jonah an allegory where each section of it is sort of symbolic, where you can make each thing represents uh, something else? It's a, is it a fictitious story with, uh, with, that makes an allegorical, makes multiple allegorical points? Or is it a parable, which is different? A parable is a made up fictitious story, uh, but it has sort of a central idea. Jesus taught in parables. Um, and so it has a central point. The story tells uh, a central point. There may be a few other details that kind of point in a dire- direction, but unlike an allegory where much of it is symbolic, it just tells a point. Or is it history? Is it a narrative of history? Well, I'm, I'm teaching it because I believe that it is history, and I believe that for a couple reasons. I believe the person that wrote the book, we don't know who wrote it, but I believe the person that wrote the book thought it was history, and I believe that the person that wrote the book um, writes it as a, an historical narrative. Um, to start with, it, it introduces a real person, Jonah, the son of Amittai. It's not a man or it's not an allegorical character, uh, it's not just like a generic man in a parable, or an al- allegorical character, it's somebody who's real. Uh, first, uh, 2 Corinthians four. let me back up, 2 Kings 14, we see Jonah is a prophet, and he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam the second, from 782 to 753. So there's a date in the Bible that we can sort of date this guy's um, ministry, a real Person, and it's introduced like other uh, narratives about a prophet. So the word of the Lord came to Jodah. It's exactly like Elijah, who also has some miraculous things happen in his story. Uh, We find the story of Elijah back in uh, the portion of scripture that are narratives and not in the prophetic parts like this. But it says, uh, there it says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, just like this. So it's written in a way that is not like an allegory or is not like a parable, but is written about someone who is fixed in another historical section of the Bible as an actual prophet of Israel. Secondly, Jesus refers to it as historical. Uh, Jesus is critiquing a, the generation of religious leaders, and he says to them in Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So what he's saying is on the judgment day, you guys, religious leaders in Israel, in Jerusalem during his time, you religious leaders are worse off than the people of Nineveh. Matter of fact, on the judgment day, the people of Nineveh are gonna be Nineveh are gonna be better off than you because they repented when they heard the word of God. You didn't. So Jesus would hardly say that about an allegory um, or about a parable. He he seems to indicate this is real people who really did repent. And Jesus, after all, is our standard for interpretation of the Old Testament. If Jesus interprets or refers to a passage, then as Christians, we take that as the authoritative interpretation. So what about the fish? That's a question. Maybe if you're new to the Bible or skeptical of the Bible and you're saying, what about the fish? The fish swallowing a man and him living for three days, that that sort of account Rings to me, you would say perhaps more like an allegory or a parable, and that is uh, understandable. Understandable, you would think that. But I want to say this: when the fish will see this, we'll get to the fish. I think next week or or in two weeks. Uh, When the fish swallows Jonah, it's not told in any kind of elaborate detail, like you might expect in an allegory uh, or even in a parable. It's just stated very simply and very matter-of-factly, and I would say that the greater miracle, if you, ha- if you are strained to believe uh, miraculous events in the Bible, I would say that there's a greater miracle in Jonah than a man being swallowed by a fish. The greater miracle is really that the, the city of Nineveh, in apparently near its entirety, would respond to God. That, that is the greater miracle of the story. The original readers wouldn't have said, wow, a fish. They would have said, wow, Nineveh converted? Are you kidding me? That's a lot less likely. Uh, so when we get to the fish, I'll talk about it a little bit more. I do want to say this. If you are somewhat skeptical of sections of the Bible uh, that are miraculous, um, don't let, in this story, the fish hold you up. I wouldn't want you to get it caught by the fish, literally, or figuratively. I wouldn't want you to get caught by the fish and miss what God has to say to you about himself in the story. So I believe it's historical, uh, but I would also say don't, that's not the center of the story. So it's historical, but it's not written like someone would just write a history or a journalist would tell a story. It is a, a, a history that is arranged in a way to make a point. So what has happened here is that while these things have happened, uh, they, we get a selective history because we're getting scenes that fit together to make a point. And, and the point has to do with the mercy of God. Uh, the story is, is uh, various surprises are um, recovered and retold for us in the story, various surprises that point us to the mercy of God. It's a story that is like, whoa, I, that's unexpected to its original readers. Whoa, I didn't see that Coming, And this is helpful for us because kind of a, a modern rational mind can get hung up on a fish. But the original readers would have very much uh, gotten, would have read and felt the various surprises of the text. Uh, the miracles, the preservation of Jonah, a miracle to be sure. But there are other miraculous or at least astounding parts to the text. And we see in this first three verses a series of surprises. So, first of all, there's a surprising mission. The word of the Lord, verse 1, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. God sends Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and this is an absolutely unprecedented mission in the Bible. Nothing like this has happened in the Bible. You see, in the Bible, the prophets of Israel who spoke for God and delivered God's Word primarily, not exclusively, but primarily delivered prophetic messages to Israel. At times, you see this in Isaiah and some other prophets, I believe Amos, Uh, there are words given about the nations and to the nations. But the prophet is never called to go to Gentile territory, to leave God's land, God's holy land, to leave that, go to Gentile territory, and declare that message. That's never happened. And so this this mission that that Jonah is being sent on is surprising. It is shocking. God hasn't sent a prophet to Assyria before. So Jonah responds with, no, thank you. I'll go the other way. It's a surprising mission. We can just look at this and say, well, is Jonah lazy? Like he just doesn't want to tell his coworker about Jesus? No, this is categorically different. It's a surprising message. Look at verse 2. Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me, their evil has come up before me. He's saying, I want you to physically go to a Gentile pagan nation, and I want you to warn them of impending judgment. Now, on first glance, it looks like Jonah would only have to announce their guilt. Like, just show up and say, everybody here is bad. Okay? So, what, you know, that doesn't seem like such a compromise of his faith, other than the fact he has to stand uh, in, among them. It looks like he can still maintain his us identity when he goes to them. But to announce their future demise, their near future demise, is a call to repentance with the implicit offer of forgiveness. And we see that in chapter 4. So if you only read chapter 1 verse 2, you would think, oh, he's just supposed to go and say, you guys are in big trouble But we know there's more to it than that. Because if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, after they respond, it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, "'O Lord,' is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you would do this. So when he is going to proclaim judgment is coming, it is with a call to turn to the God of Israel. Jonah can't fathom that God would show mercy to them. They are Israel's enemies. Israel has paid a heavy tribute to them. And what's more, the nation of Assyria is historically known as one of the most vile, cruel, violent nations. And it's helpful to to get a small picture of that. That he wasn't just saying, go across the street and share with someone that's slightly different than you. Uh, he's not saying go across the street and tell someone you are a believer and they may laugh at you or not like it. Uh, these are vile people. In Keller's book, uh, The Prodigal Prophet, he gives a description of Assyria, which I think is helpful because it makes us a bit sympathetic to Jonah. It's easy to write Jonah off as a coward or selfish, or, but, but he was being asked to do something that was unprecedented, And listened who he was going to. Keller writes, It was shocking that the God of Israel would want to warn Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire of impending doom. Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories, gloating of whole plains littered with corpses and cities burned completely to the ground. The emperor, Shalmaneser III, is well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and decapitations of enemies in grisly detail on large stone relief panels. Assyrian history is, quote, quotes a historian, as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs, cut off one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so that they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their body with ropes so that they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents' alive those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery the assyrians have been called a terrorist state israel had begun i mean i'm sorry the empire assyria had begun exacting heavy tribute from israel during the reign of king jehu and continued to threaten jewish northern kingdom life throughout jonah's lifetime In 722 B.C., it finally invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria. Yet, it was this nation that was the object of God's missionary outreach. It's a surprising message. Go to Nineveh and give them an opportunity to respond. Why would God not bring immediate justice to them? Jonah is saying, how could you show them mercy? It doesn't seem fair. And so Jonah says, I will just immediately go to Tarshish. I will head in the opposite direction. He goes, he, he heads west. They are northeast from him. Uh, Nineveh is, but he chooses to go the opposite way. Tarshish is viewed as sort of the end of the world. It's, an, it's as far west as, you can, as the known world to them at that point. Uh, and it's sort of an exotic place. So, in 1 Kings, for instance, we find that when Solomon's fleet returns from Tarshish, they bring gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So, Tarshish is this, this, it's the end of the world, and it's exotic. It's what... uh, Eugene Peterson called an exotic escapism. It's, I'm getting away from it all. The text is telling us that he wants to get away from God, he wants to get away from God's purposes, and he wants to just go to paradise on the other end of the world. Look at how it's emphasized in verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Is, it, is there any question where Jonah is heading? He wants to go far away. And it's not just his destination, but it's his attitude. Verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Three times he's going to Tarshish, twice in one verse, he's fleeing the presence of the Lord. And why is he running away to escape as far as possible from God and his people? Because God is apparently, possibly going to show mercy to them. And so he runs. It's a surprising mission it's a surprising message. Warn them of doom? Why not just bring judgment? It's a surprising message and it's a surprising mercy. The center of the book, almost, almost the center of the book verse-wise is chapter 2 verse 9, which says, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the heart that God owns mercy, Salvation is from him, it belongs to him, and God gives mercy to whom he chooses. And mercy lands sometimes in the most unexpected places, like with pagan sailors who end up offering sacrifices to God, to pagan nations who turn, and later Jesus says to the religious leaders of Israel that Nineveh will fare better than you in the judgment. That is a surprising, shocking mercy. And it's even surprising that he shows mercy to Jonah, who wants to run, but you cannot escape the presence of God. You cannot run from him. He will follow you. It's a great story for church kids that are considering wandering or are wandering. You cannot outrun God he will come to you, he will come for you, and he will overwhelm you with mercy. He's coming after you, and he's coming with good. That's, that's certainly a subplot in the story. But there is mercy to Jonah. So the story of surprising mercy It's it's within a great story in the Bible, which is a story of mercy. After the fall of Adam and Eve, Eve, back at the beginning of the Bible, God says that he will change everything, that he will restore. He'll do better than restore. He's going to make all things new. And he chooses a man named Abraham. This is very important in Genesis 12. He chooses a man and says, okay, I'm enacting my plan, and through you I'm going to build a nation that will be my people, Israel. I'm going to give you a land which is uh, the section of land that they were given to live in, uh, and through you uh, will come one who will be a blessing to the nation. Through you I will bless the nations, is what he says. So Jonah's very clear on the bit about God gave us mercy in Abraham, and God made us a people that he treasures, and God gave us a land. He, he is, Jonah's very clear on that stuff. What Jonah's not clear on is the purpose, the ultimate purpose of all that. For that wasn't to end on Israel, that was to be shared with the nations to represent God so that the nations would see God. The mercy of God to Israel and the mercy of God to you is not a cul-de-sac. It's a street that flows through. It's to go through us to other people. There is to be no us and them. It is we have received mercy and we want mercy for them as well. Mercy for us, yes, but mercy for them, too. It overflows into the nations. That was the purpose. And when Jonah gets the, this moment to see, oh yeah, that even means cruel enemies. That even means the most despicable humans on the planet because their behavior is so anti-life, so, so uh, just indescribable. You were in, un, we were uncomfortable with me just even reading a brief description, much less seeing any of that. But there is mercy for them. Now, if we just take the story at its surface, it's kind of a downer because Jonah never gets it right. Even after going and preaching and there's this turnaround for the people of Nineveh, he is depressed. He cares more about a plant than an entire city of lost people. And so at one level, you read the story and you go, man, well, it's it's kind of not, it didn't end on a happy note in one way because it doesn't appear that he ever got it. And so I think the story really wants to point us in two directions. We don't know what happened to Jonah after this. We know God was with him. God was sustaining him. God was chasing him down. God was providing shade on a hot day. God was caring for Jonah, to be sure. God was blessing his preaching. Um, And in a miraculous way, blessing his ministry to them. But I think the story ultimately points in two directions. In the first place, I think it points to us. Now give me a minute, unless you think it's a man-centered approach to the Bible here. I'm not. But I do believe it points to us, the reader. And the reason I say that is because the way it ends. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. This is the end of the story. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The story does not resolve. It just ends with this open-ended question. And so as a reader, that question is, is, I believe, implied it's left with us. In other words, it's like saying, okay, here, the story's over now. You've heard the story. So what do you think? I mean, the story shows us that God is compassionate, that he pities wicked people, that he delights to show them mercy. So how about you? How about you? Are you like Jonah or are you like God? Who is in your them category? I listed all kinds of categories at the beginning of the sermon. Maybe I didn't list your them. But who's in your them category? Who is your Assyria? The the kind of person that if God were to say, and I want you to go hang out with them, I want you to go offer love the love of God to them, who would be your them? Who are, do you view as enemies of the church? Just like Assyria was enemies of God's people, the old covenant people, Israel. Who are the enemies, you would say? We may end up with different answers on this. But who would you view as enemies of our faith? Think about Jonah. They're enemies of our way. They're enemies of our calling. They're enemies of our value. So who are the thems that are the enemies of your values? That's who God wants you thinking about at the end of this passage, because God wants you to think about his mercy to them. Maybe it's not a them. Maybe it's a he or a she, someone who has persecuted you, someone who has shunned you someone who has rejected you, someone who has mocked you. Maybe, maybe it's in the workplace. They've just overlooked you because of, you feel, because of your faith. Or maybe it's in your family. You're marginalized in the family because of your faith. Who is it that you perceive as far from God, enemy of God, enemy of God's ways, enemy of you, enemy of the church, Who's your them? I believe the open-ended question says do you care more about a plant or do you care about them? That's where he leaves it. Why shouldn't God have mercy on people that don't know their right from their left? Are they guilty for their sin? Yes. They are guilty. But it's also true that they are blind. Responsible, yes, but, but God is compassionate. They don't know their right from their left. They don't, they're, they're clueless, they're blinded. God has mercy on them. Ultimately, the point of the book isn't just our response, so what about you? But ultimately, the point, I think, is to look to the one who is greater than Jonah. Because you see, there is one who will come in the Bible who will bring good news, who will be a faithful prophet, who will bring good news to those far from God, who will bring compassion, who will demonstrate the compassion of God to those far from God because he is God. And his name is Jesus Christ. The story leaves us warning the true prophet. You read at the end of this story, he's whining about a plant. He's mad at God. He's pouting because there's salvation invading a pagan city. It leaves you saying, are there any true prophets of God? Show us a real prophet of God. And the Bible tells us there is a true prophet. There is a true and one greater than Jonah. See, Jonah wrestles with how can God show mercy to violent and evil people? Shouldn't he show justice? How can God show mercy and still be just? And we find the story of Jonah points forward to a prophet who answers that question. Jesus Christ. In Matthew 12, when the religious leaders asked Jesus for a sign, show us a sign that you are who you say you are. He says, I'm not going to give you a sign, but I will tell you this. I'll give you this as a sign. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. And then he goes on and says, Something greater than Jonah is here. He uses Jonah's, uh, you know, in the whale picture and says, just like that happened, I'm going to be in the ground. Jesus says, I'll give you a sign, I'm going to die. Watch my death. That's the sign that God has come to bring mercy and justice. Jesus dies on a cross for our sins. He is buried. He is raised on the third day. And in Jesus, we see the perfect blend of God's justice and God's mercy. And it's surprising mercy. Because in this day, what happens is God is just to punish sinners by pouring out his judgment on the sinless one, Jesus Christ. Justice is in the cross. Jesus, the lamb, is the substitute who pays for our sins. Jesus gets justice for our sins, not his own, and we get mercy for his sacrifice. In Jesus, the greater Jonah, there is what Jonah thinks should happen. There should be justice, but there is justice and mercy for us in Jesus Christ. He receives judgment. We receive mercy. And he brings us, those who are far away, enemies of God, he brings us into his kingdom. And so God can say he is just, and he is the justifier of the one who has faith. We must be gripped with that mercy for us. See, when we read the story of Jonah, it ultimately points us to the great prophet, Jesus, the one who brings mercy, the one who is mercy, and the one who takes the cost of justice the cost of judgment in our place. We want that mercy to grip us. I said at the beginning, I think the starting point to living as a believer in an us and them culture is to begin to understand God's view of them, to be assaulted with this reality of God's mercy to them. But really there's something before that, if I could correct that or adjust that. I would say it starts with seeing God's mercy to us. Because until God's mercy to us is real, until I see myself, not just the Assyrians, not just whoever your them is, not just them, yeah, they sure need God. I need to first of all see how much I need God. How merciful God has been to me. Not how bad they are, but how merciful God has been to me, a sinner. It's that private experience of marinating in the mercy of God. Sweet mercy for me that begins that private experience is meant to drive our public faith so that we want mercy for them. The sweet mercy to me overflows in a merciful attitude and a heart for them. Have you received that mercy? Do you see that mercy? Do you view others through that mercy? Or are you buying in to the lie of the culture, which is as old as the garden? It's them. It's them. Adam says, it's not me, it's her. It's them. Or once we become a Christian, mercy for me, justice for them. Mercy for me, justice for them. Have you received that mercy? And if you have, do you want it for others? Are you willing to? To engage and listen and relate and serve and love them. Those far from God. For God has loved you in the exact state. God has come to you in Christ and borne your sins. If you've never known that mercy, you can know it today. Maybe you say, I've never even experienced the mercy of God. Well, it's the mercy of God that you're here today to hear this story about Jonah because God extends mercy to you today and calls you to believe in him, to turn from your sin, to believe in Jesus Christ and to receive his forgiveness. And it's on the basis of that mercy that we can show mercy to others. May God work in our hearts so that we are burdened and broken for them. And we really see the whole world as it's all us in need of the mercy of him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.